Welcome to the Manufacturing and Supply Chain CEO Podcast. I'm Martin Harsberger, President of Measurable Results, LLC, and martinharsberger.com. I'm a retired CEO of both a manufacturing company and a third-party logistics company. We were lucky enough to grow both to eight-figure organizations. I've been consulting with small and mid-tier companies for the past 16 years. Our mission with this podcast is to provide a forum to help CEOs in these critical industries share their stories, share best practices, and learn from each other. If you'd like to be a guest in our podcast, go to www.martinharsberger.com slash apply. Each interview will take about 30 minutes. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome to this episode of Manufacturing and Supply Chain CEOs. Uh, with us this morning, we have Thomas Campbell, a Chief Strategy Officer and Co-Founder of Capacity LLC. And Gabriela Barquez, who is a marketing administrator, marketing analyst. I'm sorry. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about marketing about your your company, Capacity LLC. I know it's third party logistics, but let's talk about that. Sure. Thanks, Martin, and thanks for having us on. We we are Capacity, which is a third party order fulfillment logistics provider. So companies will outsource their uh, operational execution to us. After goods are manufactured, they'll come to our warehouses and then we will sometimes have to rework the product, think, make a gift set out of it, relabel it for retailer requirements, and we'll ship it off to their e-commerce consumers and their retailers. And we'll also integrate with those different channels. So in the case of a website, we might integrate with Shopify or Magento or WooCommerce. And in the case of a retailer, we might integrate through EDI on behalf of the client, or the client might already have integrations and would then pass data to us. But we also have to conform to those retailers, labeling, and routing requirements, calling in the trucks, all that good stuff. And for some of the retailers like Ulta and Sephora, we actually act as a de facto consolidator because we have so many brands that ship to them. Every other day, we'll call in the trucks. Every other day, they'll send in the trucks to pick up the orders. They get economies of scale out of the consolidation of that volume in our house. I understand. I, I actually started a third-party logistics company back. That's how I got to the South, uh, FedEx oh. hub. Uh, so I was curious about that. Uh, how do you bill for your services? Transaction-based or? or uh... It's a good question. We have a model that is weighted towards transactions. We want to be maximally aligned with our clients. And so the 30 to 50% of the fees that we charge are order and unit cases, inner cases in some cases, so that when our clients are selling stuff, that's when they're incurring a lot of the expense with us. We don't charge, for example, to receive, which mm -hmm. many competitors do. But our, our, you know, our philosophy is we want to be maximally aligned with those brands that we partner with. We also have storage charges. Um, we also have hourly charges if we're doing value-added services, although those are increasingly quoted on a per unit basis. And then many clients take advantage of our relationships with shippers, both parcel carriers and truck carriers. And then we resell those services on a marked up basis. And we also administer them and do the claims and, and do all the routing, as I mentioned earlier. Well, it tells me that you've got to be a strong technology base to track all that. And then. Uh, so that was the idea. A couple of decades ago, my, my partner and I, you know, everybody was starting businesses in the 90s and most of them were virtual businesses. They were internet-based concepts. Um, and 
uh, my business partner, uh, Jeff Caden, our CEO, has a background as a consultant. So we met at university and he was a civil engineer. So he went off to Asia for a decade to build stuff. And I was an English major. So I went off to Wall Street to manage money. Um, and when Jeff came back, he worked with his dad and his dad uh, started his career at Grumman at working for NASA on the lunar module that was the LEM-5, the first lunar landing module. And when he left Grumman, he started to work for a consultancy that specialized in designing distribution centers. And they would go into small and medium-sized companies and large companies and look at their processes, which at that point in history in the 70s were almost entirely manual, make recommendations about implementing technology, material handling equipment. And so Jeff grew up in that business. And when he collaborated with his father, they did some high touch, high profile projects like Sears had a shoe sorting facility in the Northeast and Fresh Direct was a big consulting project which did full frozen refrigerated complex, same day fulfillment for groceries. Um, and then Jeff and a business partner, uh, a colleague rather from business school, Arlen Fish, came up with the idea of starting a 3PL that would bring uh, top tier technology and methods uh, like the ones Jeff and his father had been deploying to smaller and medium sized companies that couldn't necessarily plunk down you know, a six figure salary for a warehouse manager and lease a million dollar building and buy a million dollar WMS. So we were going to um, join the fray, which was at the time pretty fragmented and, and increasingly pervasive in some industries. Apparel and beauty have outsourced their fulfillment operations for a long time, but it was still a growing business. And it certainly didn't have, it wasn't very well known. Uh, Amazon hadn't really hit the scene in a big way and people were not that focused on fulfillment yet. But I liked the idea and I thought that people were going to actually still have to do physical work, even though the digital revolution was changing lots of things. It wasn't going to change that. Um, and so 20 years later, we're still doing it. So something must be going right. You're going right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. My, my thing I focused on, I worked with high tech companies, most of the computer companies today. And, and what I sold was time. Reduced their pipeline. Uh, Apple North America would ship all the returns in us. We could turn them over a lot quicker. Repackage some of the same things you're doing. That is that is a uh, a part of any service offering. If you can save your clients time, you can save them money. Yeah. Right. The, the thing that hit me most, and one of those BPs from Apple walking through, I had to build a seventy-five foot, seventy thousand five, seven thousand five foot extension on my building, I had a 500,000 foot building just for Apple and it was mm -hmm. full. And he's walking through one day and he said, what do you see? I see, you know, I see your computers. He says, I see bananas. He said, they're spoiling at 7% a month. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair, that's, that, that's, a, that's a powerful statement right there. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I thought, yeah, you know what? He's right, it's crazy. Huh. Uh, you told me how you got started in this. Where do you think your business is going? What happened to you in the last year with the supply chain mess we have? And, that's another, that's a very good question. And, and the, the business changed dramatically. So as I mentioned, um, we're omni-channel, i.e. we service both direct-to-consumer channels for our clients and also we're B2B. In the pre-COVID times, we were probably about 65% of our turnover or top-line revenue was um, from B2B shipments. And then during the pandemic year, uh, we went to 75% e-commerce and there's a bit of a reversion to the prior levels, but we're probably closer to 50-50 right now. 
And that has huge implications. It has implications in terms of how much space you need and how much labor you need. E-commerce takes more space and more labor. It has implications for our clients in that fulfilling e-commerce orders is more expensive than fulfilling B2B orders. Uh, and it has implications for us because there are different margins on those different sides of the business. And we have, we've been- right? I'm sorry? I said, I assume you're shipping smaller quantities, more shipments, smaller, smaller quantities. More orders, less units. That's exactly yeah. what it, it has come back. And the B2B is, is you know, retail stores are not going away. Yeah. I had an experience recently. I went into um, Harrods in the UK and I realized there really are places where you can have a unique shopping experience that you just don't get online. But to a large degree, the American consumer has been trained heavily by Amazon, but also Walmart and other key players mm-hmm. to sort of devalue that. I think it'll come back, but um, I wouldn't want to bet my life on it. And so I think that going forward, we're going to increasingly see that there's going to be more of a premium on operators who can take labor out in the same way we were just talking about taking time out. And I'm not talking about cutting on the number of people I employ, that's going to go up. But the labor component is one of the most expensive components in the services I provide, along with real estate. And both of those costs have escalated massively. So if my least expensive building is, you know, at $5 a square foot, the market is now 15. If my labor rate wages were under $10, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they're at 19 now. It, it's, it's just, uh, it's like gravity. It's not just a good idea. It's the law. And, and I don't, even if some of the supply chain constraints and some of the inflationary um, pressures are, as Chairman Powell says, transitory. I don't think they're that transitory in terms of some of the high watermarks we're seeing in, in labor prices and real estate. And part of it has to do with the jobs that people want to do. So we also, in addition to wanting to hire and retain quality uh, associates at all levels of the business, you know, people like working with technology. Technology is kind of a lingua franca. You can you can work with people who have many different languages as their primary language, and they can function in a high-tech environment extremely efficiently and effectively. So we're constantly looking at that. I think culture is going to become more and more of a focus for companies like ours. It's always been a big focus for us, but I think the us and them attitude of, of manufacturing and, and office work in the United States is very dated and uh, is going to need to go the way of the, uh, the Model A. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that all of those orders that are going to consumers, there's there's generally a human being who at some point is the last person to touch it and has a real impact on that customer experience. And, and brands are clearly very attuned to the fact that the customer experience, if not everything, is a huge portion of your competitive advantage in the marketplace. Yeah, sure. I mean, and it, that's all people-driven and engagement-driven, right? I, Back to your culture's comment that everybody I work with at this point, where we used to talk about corporate culture 20 years ago, we'd say, yeah, that's a good idea. Now, you know, with social media and you've got a bad work reputation, it's all over the place. If you've got a bad relationship with your customers, it's all over the place. Very true. You do. Employees have to be engaged and and buy into what you're doing and understand what you're doing and become uh, brand champions, I guess. Otherwise, uh, you don't make it. So Gabriella is one of those consumers. She's just graduated from university. And I did, yeah. <laughs> what, what turns your head in a brand experience when you're receiving something from one of the brands that you buy things from online because you must? That's, oh, yeah, all the time. It's That's a great question because actually with e-commerce, I 
it didn't come into play at least in my life until like the last five or six years when I did start having like some general income for myself so um what it turns my head mostly with social media at least with people who are in my generation we don't turn heads very often in terms of marketing brands because we know that they're trying to sell us something right what turns our head is a unique benefactor of like what is different about this company that's not the same cookie cutter script that we've been hearing at the same time so sometimes I see brands say some outlandish jokes or post something that's out of the ordinary and that strikes my eye like that sets them apart from any other company that's trying to sell me the same exact thing yeah you're right uh, uh, everybody's trying to sell you something you don't want to be sold you want to buy and what yeah. do you want to buy from you want to buy from people you can relate to I get it uh, it's interesting so where do you think your industry is going? You just said that you're going back to more retail, I guess. I hope so. Uh, you know, I had a, one of my, when I had my company here in the States, I had a subsidiary in West Europe in Frankfurt, Germany. And I, you get used to the towns over there with the downtown areas and people moving in and out of shops and restaurants and, you know, the, the, the malls and the, and the e-commerce over here just about killed that. And it's, 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 mm. I hate to see it because it's just a different lifestyle over there. I'd like to see it come back to some I, sense of what we have. I think your lips to God's ears. My my wife is in Europe installing a show right now. And I really love that um, small town center culture. I live in Brooklyn. That's probably indicative of, of my, my appreciation <laughs> for, you know, a, a culture where you can walk to places and see people and be in public spaces. Yeah. I think it'll come back. I think that the the the, you know, the life of cities in the United States will continue to be an upward trending story. I think our big challenge is our rural communities, which have been very poorly served by the, the cookie cutter um, mall experience. And it isn't that there aren't good mall experiences, there are, but I think that some of the more rapacious commercial real estate practices were not friendly to the retailers that prop those places up. Nope. And I don't think that the consumer was always top of mind. I think there were other business concerns that were competing. And I think that one of the things that's great about small neighborhood shops and that experience you get when you walk into your local baker and they know who you are and they know that, you know, they've just, they've saved that sourdough boule for you because they, they were about to sell out, but they knew they hadn't seen you that day. You can't replace that. And, and I hope it doesn't go away because I, I think we'll all be much the poorer for it if it does. Yeah. And it's my hope that it, on the contrary, that the, the e-commerce and the other experiences that we have now are kind of just in their infancy and they'll evolve and become more nuanced the way that old world model that you're hearkening back to, um, you know, really, it still has a lot of charm. I, and I, I go back, you know, whether it's going into Harrods or going into a small, you know, Vienna cafe, it's pretty hard to beat that. And it's, it's, it's too bad that it isn't as pervasive in America as it could be. But I do think that one of the things about the information age is that people know that's out there and people who want it are starting to find it. And many of the small businesses that support it have fiercely loyal participants. Um, yeah. I've got a friend from high school who sells coffee out of, you know, some place in Litchfield County, Connecticut. And I buy more expensive and nicer coffee from him because I know he buys it from small organic farms all over the world. Not, that's not a decision you could have made 20 years ago. So I think that people are going to be more intentional and more thoughtful around how they deploy their dollars. And to Gabriella's point, you're going to need to be different. Otherwise, you're just going to get lost in the shuffle. That's a great point. It is. 
So what are you going to focus on in the next two or three years? I'm going to focus first, I have to say, on my people. I think that, you know, we were always very focused on people and technology and, and, and the physical aspects of our business. But because you desperately need to be the employer of choice these days, the, the balance of power has clearly shifted. I mean, there are four or five million people on the sidelines of the U.S. economy who could work, but they don't want to work. They've recognized that something wasn't right with their workplace or the work they had or the trajectory they were on. And so we're going to need to focus on making that workplace a special place, um, which is something that we're doing right now. And that's been a lot of fun because I always worked in pretty humble warehouses for a couple of decades and only in the last couple of years, if we had the wherewithal to build buildings from scratch and, and redecorate offices and, and redo the bathrooms in the warehouse. If you ever want to see how a warehouse is really run, walk into the bathroom. Tell me yeah. what you said. You're going to figure out the culture pretty quickly there. Um, and then the next thing is career development. We've got to you know, build out the human resources effort at all levels of employment to make sure that people have a career path. So Gabriella's predecessor is a perfect example. Amazing woman who worked for me for I don't know, four years or so. Mm-hmm. She started as a picker. She ended up being a QC professional. Then we lost our receptionist who went into another area of the business. And so she got promoted and was the receptionist. Then she did some work on the side for me in marketing and sales. Then she became my marketing analyst. And then she went off and got a better job. But we are <laughs> going to go have lunch with her a week after next. Yeah. Um, and I think that those kinds of stories, you know, even if somebody does move on and out, are the positive tales you've got to be able to tell. If you want to employ high quality people and you want them engaged, like even, even if you have a very humble role, like the woman who, you know, takes care of the office and brings you coffee, we have a total rock star doing that. This, this, this woman, you know, makes my day every day of my life. And that is a role that you got to value. If you want to, if you, if you want to get something back, you got to give something out. And I think that's, that's the thing I'm going to focus on. I don't mean to give short shrift to the technology because I have a dozen engineers and a dozen software engineers and a dozen people in networking and hardware. And that's really, really important along with operational excellence and all the things we're doing in that area. But I do think that it's going to be people and culture that lead the charge in the next decade of our business. I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, one of the things I've seen over the years, uh, running my own company for 15 years and worked for a large company before that, and then I, I've been consulting for the last 16, is, is not so much business failures, but businesses underperforming or, or status quo. And, and that refusal, not refusal, maybe reluctance to grow or inability to grow, really impacts the ability to attract people because nobody wants to go work for somebody that's going to stay this at this level for the next 15 years anymore, right? There's got to be a yeah. progression path. They've got to see growth. They've got to see something exciting. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say especially manufacturing, but in a lot of manufacturing plants, that's, a, that's an issue. They don't know how to grow or they don't want to grow or they, they can't grow. And, it, and it's, that's where they're turnover. The biggest thing in manufacturing is employee turnover. I mean, it's consistent. No, that's very true. I mean, you hear the stagnancy of how Amazon's performing and you hear like the horror stories of warehouse workers who haven't had a good experience. Um, And although they they actually, I read an article recently on LinkedIn that they recently talked about the working from home culture and how they're, you know, they're making good experiences for their corporate workers, but they're not making a better experience at all for their warehouse workers. And I haven't seen a name improvement since then. So you have that and then you compare that to any other warehouse and, you know, it really does say something. Well, all the other stuff's superfluous if you can't get the product out to the consumer, the right product at the right time and get it there safely, right? 
Yeah, so, yeah. It's also hard work. You got working in a warehouse, hard work. Very true. I used to always talk about the rental car companies years ago when they made all this, this uh, spent all this money on marketing, CTV commercials, and we're number two, we try hard all this did. And first time you go up to an airplane or to a counter in an airport, 10 o'clock at night and talk to a person, you see right there, they wasted their money because that customer base was horrible. Well, and I think that's a great point. You know, if you look at enterprise, I have hired a number of people who've been through the enterprise training program. And that was one of the ways that they really differentiated themselves at a key competitive inflection point. And they were able to, to gain market share because they had a crusher training program. Yeah, I mean, that's the face of the customer. All the other stuff is... I like enterprise too because I go right to the car and I have to go through the counter. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm a sucker for that as well. <laughs> yeah, enterprise. No, I don't like enterprise. They dropped me off at that place in Houston one time. There's a long story. I'll tell you later. But uh, yeah, but they do have. I actually knew a VP that worked for enterprise, and they do have a pretty good training program. Hmm. Uh, there's uh, few and far between the training. Typically, what's your feeling on training, leadership training and so on? What's your feeling on the value of that? I think it's something that we haven't done enough of that I can really answer that intelligently. I am bringing in somebody. We, we, we have an annual process, which got slightly derailed last year, but it's been very effective in the past. And it's really my, my partner's brainchild, which is we have individual department offsites of two to four days yep. where we review the year in the rearview mirror you know, whiteboard it, distill it. What were the challenges? What were the things we learned? What do we get right? What do we get wrong? What do we need to do better next time? What areas do we need to shore up? And then the, the end product is sort of, okay, this is our plan for the year to come. All of that then goes up to leadership. Leadership goes on the last offsite for about a week and we make the budget and we make the forecast and we make the plan for the year. And that is, that's, an, that's a forum where for our commercial team, I'm going to, bring in somebody who I saw recently. I'm on the board of a group called the Foundation for Supply Chain Sourcing. And it's great because you really get to hear about all of these challenges that manufacturers have because it's all the co-mans and the co-packs and the big CPGs. It's the J&Js and the P&Gs and Kellogg's and General Mills and all of the companies like mine that support them as externals. And it, it's just extraordinary to hear what's going on inside those companies. And then our organization brought somebody who was basically tasked with the four o'clock at the end of the conference slot when everybody's blood sugar is dying and it's just before happy hour. So everybody really wants to get to the bar. And <laughs> this guy was totally inspirational and he was very, very well, uh, very, very well steeped in neuroscience and how to kind of get people's brainwaves off of the flat line. That is so often how we respond to being presented to. And he had a lot of really great practical cat tricks for how to engage and be a presenter that really gets people to think and really gets people to engage with what you're saying and gets people out of that mode of just being passive. And I think that that is training that is going to be great for the commercial team because the commercial team consists of salespeople who could, you know, they could sell, but they could also be better listeners, relationship managers. They can listen pretty well, but they could also be better presenters and, and you know, people who are responsible for onboarding and managing teams and, and all of us could use more of those chops. And so that's probably the first step. I think the next step is each one of my leaders needs to be more free to spend time mentoring leaders beneath them. And I know that that is a lot of the great operational leaders I've ever known. That's been one of their number one tricks in the bag is that they know how to develop leaders. But my chief operating officer uh, 
Kevin Adams wants his building leaders and his operational leaders to be technically savvy, business savvy. So they understand those two key technical areas of the business. They have to be client facing. And those are key attributes for any employee. Everybody ought to be that way. And and, and I think also giving, giving people concrete goals and being as a leader able to say, I'd much rather see you try and fail than not try. And, and, and being able to actually do that because it's easy to say it, but watching your people fail and screw something up that you have to clean up and then saying, no, that was okay. You did what I said. Takes, um, it takes a little bit more effort, but it, the, the end result is that you have people who have agency. So again, exactly. it's an area of growth, but it's, it's one that I think about and that I'm, I'm excited to get more um, into the house. I, did, I read an article a while back that leadership training doesn't work. And, and it was because I've never seen it work long term. Hmm. And, and I read an article, I think it was in HBR, where uh, I, I referenced to her just a few days ago, where they said that the, the power and the inertia of the organization is so strong that you can't overcome it with, the, with what you've learned in, in training. The, the power of the person taking the training is not able to overcome the inertia of the organization. And I think that's true. I think unless you address the whole organization like you're talking about right now, yeah. do leadership training at one level, so what? The rest of it, just like strategy, you talk about strategy. I work on strategy all, all the time, strategy and execution, which is what nobody does. <laughs> execution phase, right? But, but if you don't take a strategy down to the shop floor so they understand it and buy in, there is no strategy. Yeah. You know, it, it's, and it, it's, uh, it's complicated, though. I used to be very skeptical of the great man theory of history. You know, it's the Churchills and the Stalins and the Roosevelts of, of our history that have made history. And then I've sort of started to swing over to the idea of, well, they were just they were the person in place at, when those fulcrums of history came together. But more recently, I've started to look at them more closely. And I was recently in Churchill's war room in London, and, and there was something very special about him. And there was something unique about his the way he was steeled in the, the foundry of his personal experiences and how he managed to see that small nation through that terrible time. Sure. It's, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm still have a bit of a balance of, of, of the nature and the nurture, but I feel while the great man and woman history of theory doesn't really, doesn't really hold the day. There are some extraordinary leaders and extraordinary examples of leaders, and it's worth paying attention to some of them. Yeah. Well, we're going to ru- almost run out of time. I want to get to, get your uh, contact information. How do people get in touch with you to ask you questions like I just did? Oh, that's great. Thank you, Martin. We're at uh, capacityllc.com. And if you email any email on that website, I will see it. And there's a, a contact form there. And also our number is 732-745-7955. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Thomas Eldridge Campbell, my grandfather's first name. And um, I'm a LinkedIn Open Network member. So I, I try to be fairly open about who I'll engage with. Um, be patient if I get a little bit behind. But uh, <laughs> if you come in through the website, Gabriella will see it too, and she'll nudge me. Yes, and you can also find us on our socials for LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Good deal. Well, I appreciate your time today. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Martin. I enjoyed it too. It's great to speak with you and I hope this all goes well for you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing and Supply Chain CEOs. 
If you're a successful CEO in manufacturing or supply chain and would like to be part of the program, please visit www.martinharsberger.com apply. If you got some value out of the interview, please share it on social media. We'd really appreciate it. Also, if you know someone that would make a great guest, tag them and let them know about the show. Again, our mission is to focus on manufacturing and supply chain CEOs. We'd like to share your story and provide industry trends and updates that would interest our listeners. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up ratings and interviews go a long way in promoting the show. You can connect with me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn at uh, Martin Harshberger. Uh, or through my website, www.martinharshberger.com. Again, we appreciate it. Thanks for listening.